A quick note before we get started. This episode includes discussions of suicide. Listen with care. Okay, here's the show. Will, who was Irv Cross? Irv Cross was a star defensive back in the 1960s. That's Will Hobson, a national sports reporter for The Washington Post. He recently reported on the players who have fallen through the cracks in the NFL's concussion settlement. Who then became a famous broadcaster, was kind of a pioneer, first black full-time member of a, a network sports broadcast. He was on CBS's NFL Today for 15 years. CBS Sports Break, sponsored by imported Heineken beer. Good evening. Auburn running back Bo Jackson tonight was awarded the Heisman Trophy. When he was a football player, what was his career like? He was a really good DB. He was a really, really good cornerback. Played for the Rams and Eagles Pro Bowler twice. Watch this. That interception right there is made by Irv Cross, our own CBS sportsman. A 94-yard return for a touchdown. He played in the 60s. He's better known. Uh, my generation, I'm uh, 39, it's better known to us as a, as a sports broadcaster. And then he, years later, developed symptoms of dementia, was eventually diagnosed with dementia, and attempted to get compensated by the NFL concussion settlement. When the NFL finalized its concussion settlement in 2015, after years of scrutiny surrounding traumatic brain injuries and football, it was called a landmark and historic deal. It promised to compensate and help treat players if they developed dementia or other brain diseases linked to head trauma they suffered on the field. Injuries which usually show up later in life. Do you know how long between the end of his career, of his football career and when he started having dementia? Yeah, his medical records show that they started in the early 2000s when, when Irv would have been in his um, early 60s. Despite his symptoms and eventual diagnosis, Irv kept working. He was working, as his wife would later say, in a really reduced capacity. He was basically a, a figurehead fundraiser for a nonprofit in the Minneapolis area. By that time, the NFL had set up a network of doctors as part of the agreement. Basically, if you thought you might qualify for treatment and compensation, you went to see them. But in 2018, when Cross went to one of these doctors, he was told he didn't qualify even though he'd already been diagnosed with dementia. The doctors, they document his symptoms of dementia. He shows up, his shirt is soiled that day. His wife says, I need to remind him to change his clothes, that he's having trouble in conversation. He's borderline incoherent at times. He gets frustrated when he can't locate the right words. And the doctors note that he has basically the symptoms of dementia, but he doesn't have the test scores to meet the unique definition for dementia in this settlement. And so they write that he doesn't qualify for anything under the settlement. He ultimately never files a claim as condition worsens. Three years later, he dies of what his doctors thought was Alzheimer's disease, but an autopsy found was actually mild Alzheimer's, but he also had severe CTE. CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is a brain disorder caused by repeated head injuries pretty common in football. CTE is linked to cognitive problems and dementia, and Will's reporting found severe CTE in many of the autopsies of the former NFL players who had fought to qualify for the settlement. Why was Irv's death tragic, particularly in the context of a lot of other football players and former NFL players? Well, so Irv is basically the perfect example of the player who was supposed to be helped by this settlement. I mean, this taking a step back, this this concussion settlement 
was basically the NFL admitting no wrongdoing, but saying, we're going to put a big pot of money aside and any former player who is suffering from dementia is going to get medical care and money. And Irv indisputably had dementia and he went through this process and he failed to qualify. We found for reasons kind of baked into this settlement that are helping the NFL avoid paying claims potentially worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if not in excess of a billion dollars to hundreds of former players who are getting diagnosed with dementia. Today on the show, the NFL's concussion settlement was meant to provide financial support and medical help for players who developed traumatic brain injuries from the sport. So why are so many players denied the help they need? I'm Shana Roth, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. You're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Separation. Oh, big hit. Sanders gets walloped by McLeod. For decades, traumatic head injuries weren't much of a concern in the NFL. I mean, it's an inherently aggressive game, and getting hurt was accepted as part of the sport. Game in and game out, players would take multiple, sometimes dozens of hits to the head with little understanding of the long-term impacts it would cause to the brain. But in 2005, Bennett Amalu, a neuropathologist, published a paper in the journal Neurosurgery. It was called Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy in a National Football League Player, which found a link between playing football and developing CTE, a rare brain disease. The NFL tried to dismiss the paper, but scientists, the media, and the players started to latch on to the idea. And by 2011, the lawsuits from former players started piling up. Players start suing the league because the league for years had ignored and, in fact, denied this mounting evidence that playing in the NFL and concussions could have negative later life effects. Hundreds, eventually thousands of players sue. And the league ultimately agrees to settle. And as part of this settlement, the league basically said any former player that develops dementia or uh, several brain diseases linked to the sport, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. We're going to get you medical care. And we're going to, if you have these diseases, we're going to get you one, potentially if you have dementia, two different lump sum checks. And anyone with any of those diseases was supposed to qualify. So the agreement was the result of years of medical research, but it also happened at this time when the NFL was denying any link between brain damage and football. What was significant about the settlement? For the NFL, I think the significance of it was bringing to a close this this public relations crisis. Uh, And in that aim, it was really effective. Uh, Within two or three years of the settlement being signed, you know, in the media, we're no longer talking about concussions and CTE with the same frequency that we were in the 2011 to 2014 timeframe. For the players, it They didn't get to prove that the NFL had misled them about the dangers of playing in the sport, but they were supposed to be getting effectively this great post-retirement healthcare program that for any former player who even had the earliest signs of dementia was supposed to be an insurance plan guaranteeing there's going to be money for medical care there for you and then money to to help your family later in life as these, these symptoms progress. You said that the NFL was going through a public relations crisis. Can you walk me through that? What was what was going on there? What was the NFL experiencing? And what was the public reaction to them at the time? 
It was basically a wave of stories of players dying either through violent means or a number of suicides, like uh, former uh, San Diego Chargers star linebacker Junior Seau. Good morning. A giant in the game, Junior Seau is now perhaps the biggest name in football linked to severe brain damage from taking too many hits to the head. ABC News and ESPN learned exclusively that before his suicide, Seau suffered damage to his very brain cells. And then players who were dying with symptoms of dementia or with what their doctors thought was dementia who were then found to have CTE, this, this disease that had previously been only associated with boxers, that we were now found it could be caused or linked to playing in the NFL. And so for, uh, for several years, the NFL was not only denying the, any link between the sport and brain damage, but they also were funding their own research that, in retrospect, was flawed, and, and some of which the researchers have now distanced themselves from. The researchers portraying concussions as these really benign injuries, for the most part, and saying that if there are any later life effects, NFL players are like borderline superhuman and just impervious to any any late life effects of, um, of brain disease. There actually was a kind of pivotal moment where the league commissioned its own research that found that former NFL players were reporting symptoms of dementia at like something like 18 times the rate of the general public, which is a report the league then didn't release. And when it was leaked and the media reported on it, they argued with the results. So you know, the NFL was looking at, they were in a very similar place, I think, that the tobacco industry was about 10 or 20 years before, where they were looking at years on end of uh, lawsuits across the country playing out at their own pace, and potential leaks and negative news coverage about precisely what did this league official know and when, when they were denying any, any, long, any negative long-term effects of playing in the sport. How big of a problem is this for football, for the industry? Well, I think the crisis that they faced when, before this settlement was signed was, in, in the words of the, the league's top lawyer, a potentially existential crisis. There were real fears in the league office that that was going to really sap the popularity of the game, potentially, you know, lead to um, a, a massive decrease in, in the amount of youth players and cut off the talent pipeline. Not to mention what it, you know what it could do, you know, to the, the league's revenue streams. So I think you know the, the league settled this case out of legal concerns, but more for out of public relations concerns. They wanted this story, this negative story about, you know, what former NFL players were living with and dealing with. They wanted it out of the news, out of the headlines. They wanted it to be yesterday's news. And so, and I think the settlement from that perspective has been a great deal for the NFL because it really did, um, you know, and I can tell you as, as working on these stories now in, in 2024, uh, it's a it's a frequent question of what, what new is there here? I, I thought NFL's concussion, CTE, uh, that's all been dealt with. The settlement between the NFL and former players was approved by a federal judge in 2015. It provides medical monitoring to see if players qualify for the settlement and then payments of up to $5 million if they do. And initially, it seemed like a win-win for players in the league. But when the players started to go through the process, they found things were much more complicated. Take me through the process of filing and getting a claim approved. Let's say I'm a former NFL player. I played for many years. I was very good, but I also had a lot of damage to my body. And I think I should qualify. What are the steps that I would have to take? It was supposed to be really simple. There's going to be a nationwide network of doctors. You were supposed to call up and get an appointment. They'd, they'd evaluate you. 
pretty quickly get you medical records saying whether or not you had a qualifying condition, um, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or ALS. And then you could file a claim. You'd send that paperwork off to this largely obscure law firm that handles these claims. They would review it, make, make sure it checks all the boxes, and then either um, get you connected with medical care, with money for medical care, or, uh, or cut you a check, which, depending on your age, could range as high as $5 million. What did the process actually end up being like? Pretty much, to a lot of the players we spoke with, the direct opposite of that, or with these major hurdles, just every step of the process. So scheduling with the doctors is a tremendous ordeal. It takes you six to nine months on average to get in with the doctors, and then potentially six months to upwards of two years for them to get you the paperwork you need. Once you get the paperwork, if they do agree you have dementia as the settlement defines it, you send away to the the claims administrator, the the anonymous law firm, and they they can take months on end to review it. There is a, a small panel of anonymous review doctors who can overturn and often do overturn the diagnosis of the doctor who actually evaluated you. This whole process from A to Z can run as long as five years. And then you find out you didn't qualify and you got to start all back over again. When we come back, the difference between dementia and the settlement's definition of dementia. Reading through your piece, it seemed like one of the big hurdles that players kept experiencing was there was a different definition of dementia or a different standard of having dementia for meeting the requirements of the settlement versus just sort of everyday medical jargon. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so basically the settlement has its own definition for dementia that requires more impairment, requires you to be more further along in the progression of dementia than the standard definition that doctors use in hospitals and clinics across the country. One lawyer called it a notch above, I think was the quote. The top lawyer for the players said, it's a notch above. He also said, we just, we turn the dials up a little bit in, in creating this definition. I've had another lawyer say he tells his clients it's, it's settlement dementia. He's like, when he hears like, I've been diagnosed, but do you have dementia or do you have settlement dementia? That's different. Mm. A, a dementia diagnosis by a regular doctor has two, two major components, your cognitive test scores and then your symptoms. And the settlement's definition requires you to have more bad test scores, more, more test scores showing impairment than the regular definition. And it requires you to have more, more severe symptoms, to have your independence more severely restricted than the regular definition. It's fairly common in regular medicine for someone to get an early dementia diagnosis when they're still living by themselves, they're still driving, they're still even working. They're just doing so in a reduced capacity to what their previous functionality. In, in the settlement, you have to be pretty severely impaired even to meet their early dementia diagnosis. Which seems like it goes against what the settlement was originally touted as, which was a way of players to get medical treatment. And you mentioned in your piece that the settlement seems to have become more of a compensation program than a medical treatment program. What's the problem with that? Well, from from the players' perspective and, and a lot of their lawyers, they feel like they were they were misled and deceived, uh, both by the NFL, but also by by the top lawyer for the players who was the lead negotiator and the lead spokesman and really advocate for, for getting this settlement approved. Um, a guy named Chris Seeger, who we, we quote at length in the piece, um, who it's important to note, his firm has made um, in excess of $68 million generated in revenue off of this case, which is more than 10 times what any other firm has made. And so the 
basically the, the deal that as it has played out, the settlement as it has played out for hundreds, if not more than a thousand of former players and their families, they feel is majorly different, much worse than what they told they were getting when they signed on in support of it in, uh, in 2014. I want to talk a little bit more about Christopher Seeger. He was chosen to be the lead attorney for all of these plaintiffs in sort of a special way, right? Not everyone wanted him to be their lawyer. This gets into the, an aspect of this case that I think has broader implications beyond just the NFL is this became a what's known as a mass tort or an MDL, multidistrict litigation case. In those cases, unlike your standard lawsuit that I think we're all a little more familiar with, where you, you go hire a lawyer and say, you know, you're in a car crash and you want to sue the other driver. You hire a lawyer. And if you think that lawyer is doing a crappy job, you can fire that lawyer. And in one of these big cases, like a mass tort MDL or class action, the judge picks the lawyers because there are thousands of plaintiffs and hundreds of lawyers involved. So the judge picks the lawyers who lead the case for the plaintiffs. Mr. Seeger gets picked by the judge, um, U.S. District Judge Anita Brody. And uh, what's interesting about that is he didn't have a whole lot of clients. The other top lawyers in the case had hundreds, hundreds of clients. One had more than a thousand. And Mr. Seeger had about 20 and so the concern that that raised among a lot of the lawyers at the time was that he's got a tremendous financial incentive to see a settlement signed. He only has 20 players. So his personal financial incentive in terms of ensuring this is a great deal for my 20 clients is going to be less so than his personal incentive to ensure that a deal is signed so that my firm generates income off of this case. They raised that concern before the settlement was approved, and they continue to raise it to this day. So a lot of players have a problem with Seeger's representation. Are they right? Or is he basically just doing the best he can with a kind of bad deal for the players and essentially going up against the behemoth of the NFL? Well, I think to a large degree, that's kind of a matter of perspective. I mean, I, I've, I've talked with Mr. Seeger at length about this. And, you know, he would say a few things. He would say that, um, and he had, has told me that these cases don't go to trial. You know, this is this is all about the best deal you can get for uh, the class of clients for you know the best deal he can net negotiate for all 20,000 or more former players and that this was the best deal. This was the best deal that he or any other attorney could get. And I think what the players would tell you is this deal is not what they were told they were getting. And, and furthermore, that there have been repeated instances since the deal went into effect in 2017 in which really major problems have come to light that Seeger has then acted upon after ignoring red flags for several years on end. One issue was with the concept of race norming, a controversial practice where doctors adjust cognitive test scores based on race. It was harder for black former players to qualify than white former players because of this thing called race norming that the, the NFL was effectively forcing some doctors to, to do as they evaluated players. And Mr. Seeger eventually acknowledged this was a big problem and he apologized for not acting sooner. But, you know, reporting, including our reporting in the Post, has shown that you know, he, he was made aware of these complaints for two or three years before, uh, before he acted upon them. And then, you know, our reporting this most recent story uh, focused in on this, these administrative breakdowns in, in the networks of doctors that were leaving guys waiting months or more than a year to get their records. You know, Mr. Seeger acted on, on problems last August. Uh, claimed it was just purely coincidental that it occurred as our reporting uh, was was coming to light. But again, complaints have been raised about that since the 2018 timeframe. How much of the problems 
you've uncovered can be attributed to disagreements in science versus contract or law interpretation. I know one doctor who was actually terminated from the settlements network of doctors called the settlements interpretation junk science. So, I mean, what is the push-pull going on here? I mean, I think it's pretty split. I think that the, the main problem is just that the the science in the settlement from the player's perspective was misrepresented to them. Uh, they're, you know, the top surviving plaintiff in the case, a guy named Sean Wooden, told us that no one told him when he was signing on for this deal that the settlement had its own unique definition for dementia and that that definition was actually harder and more difficult than the regular definition. So there's that. And then the settlement as described, the process as it was going to operate was described in a way that for a lot of these players is not how it's actually played out. And I think some lawyers would tell you like, well, that's just how these kind of class action complex settlements work, where there's just an accepted level of failure. But for the players we talk about, we wrote about in their families, what failure means is they're suffering from and then dying from dementia and then failing to get the medical care and money that, that they were promised they would get. What medical or scientific challenges exist to make enforcing this particular settlement so hard? Well, I mean, there's a degree of subjectivity to dementia. Dementia is, it's not a diagnosis like um, cancer where there is just an objective biopsy you can do that shows the presence or absence of something. Uh, With Alzheimer's, you, you can do that. In, in later stages. But under the settlement, the brain scans that you would do are basically irrelevant. And so it's just very easy for the NFL and these settlement review doctors to dispute the diagnosis made by the doctor in the room and just say, I don't think, I don't think you have sufficiently proven to me that this player is impaired as the settlement requires. Or, and we wrote about this, that that it is dementia causing this impairment and not sleep apnea or depression, uh, which are conditions that are really common among former NFL players. When we're talking about money as a result of medical conditions, is it realistic to think that there's ever going to be a truly fair way of playing all this out? I mean, is there a better way to go about this settlement or is it because it's not a sort of cut and dry situation that we're dealing with? It's just always going to kind of be very fuzzy. If you talk to players and the top players' lawyers, you could make some fairly simple changes. A, you rewrite the dementia definition to just be the regular one that doctors use in every day in, in hospitals and clinics. B, cut out the second level of review. Do what you said you're going to do. You're going to have a network of world-class doctors and just trust. You, we're now seven years deep in this settlement. These doctors should be should be you should have trust as the NFL that these are good doctors. If they say these guys have dementia, don't dispute it. We're past the point where you can argue, and eh, maybe these doctors don't really understand former NFL players and, and how these conditions manifest. And so I think if you made those two changes, it would have a, a really significant effect in how quickly players with these conditions could get the medical care and money that they need. I feel like it's easy to dismiss the settlement dispute as you know, well, they're all professional football players. They probably made a ton of money while they played. So why do they need this money anyway? Why should I care about whether these people get millions of dollars? What would you say to someone who feels that way? That the players that we're writing about are not, by and large, not wealthy people. These are the generations of players who made fifty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars. Some of them, some of them made decent money when they played. But this is also the generation of players who did not know 
and we're not told that playing in the NFL would increase the risk of, of brain disease. So that, that's a risk that they did not know they were taking on as they decided to play that, that additional, you know, that third, that fourth, that eighth, ninth or tenth year. Uh, secondly, I'd say that, you know, regardless of, you know, reader apathy or sympathy for former NFL players, the lawyers for the NFL made a promise, signed off on by a federal judge, that they were going, if they develop these diseases and conditions, they're going to get medical care and they're going to get money. And the organizations that law, law firms, lawyers involved with this case are involved with many of the major class action settlements that occur every year. And so that their conduct and the way they strike deals uh, has an effect on, on an audience that far extends beyond the NFL. And so if the problems that we're documenting in this case are not anomalies or not liars, but are actually just how uh, complex cases like these play out, then there are people in, in many, many cases beyond the NFL and concussions who are going to be dealing with these issues for years to come. Will Hobson, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks much. It was my pleasure. Will Hobson is a national sports reporter for The Washington Post. And that's the show for today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell, Anna Phillips, and Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, and I really hope you are, I have a request for you. Please become a Slate Plus member. You get all kinds of extra goodies. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back Sunday with another episode. I'm Shayna Roth, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. You can find me on Instagram and threads. I'm at Shayna R. Same for X, though to a much lesser extent. I've also got a Substack. Thanks for listening.